Welcome to the MTFN BizCast, a podcast designed to provide information regarding a variety of legal topics. The attorneys at Meisner, Tierney, Fisher & Nichols host new episodes every month covering topics that are current and relevant to business owners, professionals, and members of the legal community. Although we cannot provide legal advice that you can rely on in these episodes, we do hope that they will be helpful to you if and when you ever do need to seek professional advice. Welcome back to the MTFN BizCast. My name is attorney Sean Bukowski. I'm a litigation attorney here at Meisner, Tierney, Fisher, and Nichols. Um, I'm joined here by Sam Morris, who's also a litigation attorney here as well. We're here to talk about bad faith, which is kind of an interesting topic. It's a little more niche than a lot of other areas of law here, but... um, you know, I think primarily I wanted to do this type of subject because one, Sam and I, pretty much about 80 to 90% of our practice is extra contractual bad faith work. So th- that's a lot of the work that we get. Uh, we see a lot of different cases that come in. And I think, especially I think over the past several years, I think it has definitely become, it, it's definitely expanded quite a bit. Um, I, I definitely see a lot of firms in particular specializing in bad faith, and we see a lot of those firms on the other side, obviously, in our cases. And we obviously do a lot of that work as well. So for those of you who might not know bad faith, um, bad faith is kind of just extra contractual. So you start at the beginning, you have essentially a contract with your insurance company. There are certain duties and obligations that inure to an insurance company specific to how they treat their insureds. And so, you know, bad faith is kind of, you know, what you potentially could get if the insurance company breaches these obligations in bad faith. Um, so the seminal case is really Anderson. I'm not going to really go over it. I'm not going to give you the citation or anything like that and boring you. But um, Anderson's kind of the seminal case that happened in 1978 that kind of lays down the components of how you prove a bad faith claim in Wisconsin. And what I think a lot of people get lost in and sometimes where we fall in the trap is that bad faith is an intentional tort. Um, it's, it's not negligence. We see it a lot and we see a lot of attorneys that say, well, geez, my insurance company made a mistake. Well, just because your insurance company made a mistake doesn't necessarily mean it's bad faith. Um, at the end of the day, the claims adjusters, the people that handle these claims, they're human beings. They make mistakes. However, when you start getting into some things that might be intentional or you might disregard certain information, a reckless disregard for information, that's where you start getting into bad faith. Um, and that's kind of – that's different than breach of contract because breach of contract is just, hey, you look at the insurance policy and did they breach a contractual obligation in the insurance policy? Bad faith, you don't have those obligations that are specifically in the insurance policy. So I think what we really want to kind of focus on today is really try to focus on what we can tell our uh, insurers how to avoid these type of bad faith claims. Um, Sam and I, we obviously do a lot of this work, and we don't have the benefit a lot of the times of actually essentially assisting and holding the insurance company's hand throughout the claim process. Unfortunately, we get the claim and we get the case when typically it's put into suit. Now, we do do some cases where we can assist the insurance company during the claim as well. But so we see a lot of things that insurance companies could probably do better um, than what we see. 
So I think one thing that we really want to focus on today is just, and this is missed a lot, and I think a lot of plaintiffs' attorneys really miss this as well, is that when you have a claim as an insured, it's your obligation to, one, you have to obviously prove your loss. You know, when, you know, whether it's a fire loss, it could be a water loss, it could be a bodily injury, um, any type of claims like that. We see a lot of hail and wind cases, roofing type cases as well here. Um, the insured has to prove the loss. And so, Sam, I wonder if you can, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, the type of provisions that you see in insurance policy talking about, you know, a duty to cooperate and, um, you know, providing documentation when insurer requests it. Sure. Yeah. So there are several provisions like that. It obviously depends on the uh, specific policy at issue, but most of your standard homeowners policies will include some type of provision requiring um, any insured to provide an itemization of their damages, usually within about 60 days or so after the loss. Um, and just trying to, you know, provide any documentation that they may have to support the claim and that there is um, an obligation to provide that stuff under uh, the contract. Yeah. And that's a good way to put it. I mean, um, so I think in a lot of the cases that we get, and we see it quite a bit, um, and I think I we see this probably more in fire loss cases, just because fire loss cases are are really extensive, and obviously there's like personal property that you have to itemize. So there's just a lot of work that goes into a fire loss claim. And what I see a lot in the fire loss claims is that, and I think a good practice for an insurance company is to when you are requesting this information from your insured, so for example, in a fire loss, for those that might not know, when you have a fire loss, typically what happens is the insurance company will say, hey, you've lost all this personal property. Here's a form that you can fill out. And that form will essentially, you just got to fill out the form and you list your personal property that's been lost. You itemize the cost to the best of your ability. A lot of time, that's really difficult for an insurance company to get back from their insured. Um, and a lot of the times, the insurance company has to do a lot of follow-ups. And in that case, I think a very good practice is, you know, like Sam talked about these provisions, is to when you follow up with your insured saying, hey, how are you doing on this personal property inventory? You know, can you provide us this information? You know, make sure you put those provisions, whether it's in an email correspondence or a letter, however your insureds do it. Um, you want to make sure that you actually have that language in there. One, it tells the insurer that, hey, you have an obligation as well under the insurance policy. Obviously, we do as well as insurance companies, but insureds do as well. Um, so I think one, that kind of shifts the focus a little bit more to the insured and to make sure that, you know, they actually provide the information. And where I think that sometimes comes in handy, um, one, at a claims level, it just tells the insured, oh, yeah, I better cooperate with them or, you know, maybe they'll deny my claim or something like that. But it also is helpful when we start getting these cases into litigation. And that's typically when Sam and I get these cases. And what we see all the time is that, particularly as it relates to personal property, you see a lot of cases where an insured is just not providing the information at the insurance company's request. Um, and I think the best practice is, again, to make sure you 
include those provisions. So you can actually, when this case comes to a, a conclusion and maybe it's on summary judgment and you're able to dismiss the case, you can lay out to a court, look, we have told this person you know, one, two, three different times and including the policy provisions as well that, hey, you need to cooperate with our investigation. Um, I wonder, Sam, if you see it in any other instances where this might be helpful, the provisions in particular for an insurance company? I've seen in other cases too, particularly water claims. That, that can be a thing too. Um, there can be some pretty substantial personal property uh, losses, uh, less so in the hail claim, hail slash wind claims that we get, but also in, in the water loss claims. But yeah, I, I would just echo um, what you said, and I, I would add on that just a little bit into not only include the policy language, but to also, um, I, I think it's at least the best practice for to include in the claim notes just the mere fact that you know an insurer um, has been you know informing the insured of these um, obligations. You know, just a simple note saying you know, followed up with the insured and informed them that we're still waiting for that personal property loss um, or for the personal property itemization rather. Uh, just so that way, again, you've just got some something on the back end that you can say, hey, look, I, I documented this in the moment um, because oftentimes what happens in these cases when they get to litigation is, you know, we'll have some type of argument about um, – how uh, an inventory was never provided and the insured will come back and say, well, you never asked me for it. And you may have in a phone call, but if, you, if, if that's not documented anywhere, we don't really have, you know, great physical evidence of those conversations. So um, I, I think, you know, obviously documenting the um, language itself in the form of letters is helpful, but I would also think to um, update the claim notes with, with um, that information as well, I think is, is quite helpful. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, obviously it's good practice. Again, you know, we're in the business of everything needs to be in writing, um, whether it's to another attorney, whether it's to a court, um, insurance companies the same way. You know, again, document the file, make sure it's in there. Um, make sure there's, you know, if you do mail a letter to the insured, make sure it's the correct address, things like that. Um, you don't want to have any questions about whether or not you actually provided them this information. Um, and I think sometimes where it gets lost in a lot of the insured's cases is that they think that, okay, I had this loss and I just say, hey, I had this loss to the insurance company and, and that's it. Um, at the end of the day, the insurance company needs to have certain proof to be able to pay your claim. And where I see this come into play a lot is, again, I'm going to go back to the fire loss, but I think Sam's point um, t could happen in the water loss cases as well. But I think specifically in the fire loss cases, those cases in particular, you see a lot of – Again, when you start getting down to personal property, you see a lot of the typical household items. You know, someone might have, you know, some pillows. Again, once you get into a fire loss, you get down into every little detail. It could be spoons, Absolutely. forks, <laughs> plates. I mean, you're talking about every little thing that is in your house, you're going to try to itemize because, again, you want to have the benefits. Um, you want to get everything that you're entitled to under the insurance policy. But a lot of the times is there's a lot of like very niche items. Um, like, for example, and I'm, I'm trying not to give away a current case because I mm. there's some pretty interesting items in that case. But typically, I would just say like the high value items. So you might have a very wealthy insured that might have some 
maybe some very fashionable coats that might be, you know, Gucci or something like that, or some nice purses. It's not every day that you come across somebody that has that type of, um, you know, item in their home, personal property. So naturally, the insurance company is going to want some more information about that. You're not really going to get a lot of questions on, again, the basic household items. But when you start getting into higher value items, I mean, you have to have some type of proof to be able to prove, hey, I did have this, you know, Gucci purse or, um, you know, maybe I had a Mona Lisa painting. I don't know. Um but those items are naturally going to cause questions um, because it's not every day that you're going to see someone with that. Um so naturally, the insurance company is going to want to ask those questions. And a lot of the ways that an insurance company can actually make sure that they actually get this information is you can, you know, and again, I go back to the fire loss. In a fire loss, you know, an insured, they lose everything at that point. So sometimes you're going to have a fire and everything is just going to be charred. Um, but a lot of the times people might have, Hey, may maybe I have a picture on my cell phone of me wearing this nice coat or this purse or something like that. Or maybe I can submit an affidavit from somebody that has been seeing me, you know, wearing this coat or something like that. So there are ways that an insured can actually, uh, fulfill these obligations under the insurance policy. Again, every case is going to be a little different and every item is going to be a little different, but, um, you know, I guess in the water loss cases, um, you know, what do you see in the water loss cases, Sam? I mean, it just kind of depends. A lot of it can be, you know, furniture that was damaged, um, clothing, um, you know, game systems, things along those lines that, you know, you have, you know, sitting around your apartment, your house, whatever. But, um, yeah, to again, just, I mean, just highlight the, the importance of, um, requiring some type of proof, at least again, as you said, for the, the higher value items. I, I was on a case a year or so ago. It was a, a wind damage case that uh, there was a subsequent rainstorm and there was all this claimed personal property damage. And the insured was claiming, you know, I'm trying to think of the specifics, but there was, you know, you know, an armoire that she, she said was from, you know, like the 1800s um, was that was worth like 10 grand. And then, you know, we have our expert go out there and it's, you know, it looks like you got that thing from St. Vinny's, you know, and, you know, we were ultimately able to get out of that case, at least the, you know, the personal property portion based off of the lack of specific specific itemization. So, again, to just highlight the importance of that from the insurer's perspective. Um, yeah. Sure. I laughed at your joke, Sam, but I have no idea what St. Vinny's is. Can you tell oh. the audience what St. Vinny's <laughs> no, is? No, no, St. Vinny's, St. Vincent DePaul. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Now I know what you're talking about. Okay. Man, too fancy for me. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, no, I mean, I think that's a good point. And, and I think, I mean, just think about it logically. I mean, if you're putting a, together a personal property inventory, anybody could put any item down on there. So that's why they're naturally going to require um, some type of proof for payment. Because again... I could have a fire loss and look, I, I'm, I'm, I look, I'm an attorney, but I'm by no means wealthy. Um, and at the end of the day, I could just say, well, you know, I had this, I had this nice painting in my, my, you know, it was $10,000. I'm not suggesting anyone should be committing insurance fraud or anything like that, but anybody could do that. 
Anybody you're, you're putting any- the evidence out there, Sean, that you don't have this painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't. Yes, I am a typical man. I don't have anything on my walls. Um, so, but but again, anybody could put these things down, and I think that's where the insurer, you know, is going to request, you know, this type of documentation. And I guess just to maybe wrap it up is just again, make sure you document the file when you request this information. Um, again, that puts the the onus on the insureds to fulfill their obligation out of the insurance policy. Um, and you know, I, I think that's you know really it. Yeah, and I, I mean, the only other last point I would say too is just, I mean itemizations and reminding the insured of their requirement to submit the those items that's not just you know so you can get rid of this case it's also just from a practical perspective i mean a lot of these you know most insureds are you know everyday people with kids and jobs <laughs> they could have just forgot and it um you know reminding them of their requirement to do so can honestly just facilitate the claims handling and make the process in general just a lot less adversarial um so I, I think just in that regard it's just helpful in, in that way too yeah it, it definitely and, and that's the point too i mean it definitely has a practical effect just on the actual claim at the end of the day you know as well as i do sam insurance companies don't want claims open for years at the end of the yeah. day they you know it's like our cases too we don't want cases to drag <laughs> on because at the end of the day we get new cases that come in and if yeah. we're still dealing with a case that's two or three years old um you know that that's a lot more work for us. It's no different than a claims adjuster at an insurance company. They want to get these claims done. Contrary to popular belief, <laughs> insurance companies do want to pay you. Um, we're not trying to, you know, jip you or, um, you know, trying to withhold insurance benefits. At the end of the day, we're just trying to make sure that we're able to document our file and to make sure that we have the proof that, hey, what you're submitting is, yes, we can pay for it because you have submitted the evidence to prove it. And again, that's going to depend on the case. That's going to depend on the item. But again, it does, like to your point, Sam, it has a practical effect, but it also has that litigation effect too is, you know, if it does get put into litigation and we do have it insured that is just not cooperating and not providing the information, you know, that provides us, you know, a good opportunity potentially for, you know, an early summary judgment motion. Um, exactly. Any last thoughts, Sam? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I think that covered pretty much everything. All right. Well, thank you for everybody for listening. Uh, we're going to sign off. See ya. Thank you for listening to this MTFN BizCast. For more information, please visit our website, mtfn.com. There you can access other podcast episodes, articles, and the contact information for our attorneys. To keep up to date with Meisner Attorney Fisher and Nichols, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 